Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analyst Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Good to see you both. Hey, hey. Good to see you. We've got the latest on housing, retail, entertainment, and more. Rule-breaking investor David Gardner is our guest. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the Magic Kingdom. Shares of Disney hit an all-time high on Friday after the company's first quarter report was highlighted by the news that the Disney Plus streaming service now has 95 million subscribers. Jason, when they launched Disney Plus, the company said that they were projecting they'd hit 90 million subscribers by the end of 2024. It's nice to see them get there a little early. <laughs> I was going to say, let me check my watch here. I think 20, it's 2021, right? Listen, I mean, much like the content that they produce so well, I think Disney is doing a really, really good job of telling the story here because it, it is, it's kind of a tale of two Disneys right now. It's subscribers versus the actual business. So you mentioned the subscribers, but look at the actual business. I mean, revenue was still down 22%, adjusted earnings still down 79%, and yet the stock is up 34% over the last 12 months. And so I think a lot of that really boils down to that number that you just quoted in regard to subscribers. And, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I think that given the pandemic, given everything that we've seen in regard to entertainment in general, I mean, clearly we're not fully back open. Disney World traffic is coming around, they noted, but they did quantify the parks segment of the business has been hit to the tune of about $2.6 billion in operating income for the quarter. And it doesn't look like we're going to see any real relief in the near term. They're hoping to see Disneyland, Disneyland Paris open up in the back half of the year, but they anticipate those parks will be closed for the second quarter, hoping to see Hong Kong Disneyland reopen later during the quarter as well. But again, it just boils down to the story that they're telling in regard to this move to over the top, the subscriber growth. And I think that is really what's keeping this stock where it is today. Because if that story, if that narrative didn't exist right now, I think we're looking at a substantially different story in regard to the stock price. Do you think they hold off a while before really starting to pull the lever on the subscription cost to Disney Plus? You know, as soon as I say they probably will hold off for a while, they're going to start throwing throwing through some price increases. I actually wouldn't be surprised to see them nudge through a couple of price increases here sooner rather than later because they did such a good job pricing them so low at the very beginning, right? I mean, they they priced them so low, they're virtually forgettable price points, and then they offered a pretty compelling bundle valuation there. We've seen them already bump up the pricing on that Hulu product, particularly the Hulu Live product, and that seems to be going through without too much friction whatsoever. I don't think they would have nearly as hard of a time doing that, particularly with Disney+. Plus. So, as we see that, uh, that service continue to roll out to the rest of its international markets here over the rest of 2021, yeah, it wouldn't shock me at all to see him maybe flex that pricing power muscle just a little bit. IPO of the week goes to Bumble. Shares of the dating app rose more than 60% on Thursday, making Bumble founder and CEO Whitney Wolf Heard a billionaire. Emily, obviously, Match Group is the dominant player in the dating app industry. So, Bumble has their work cut out for them. 
They certainly do, but if anybody's up to the task, it's Bumble. And that's because Bumble has really done a great job in differentiating its platform from the other dating sites out there. And they've done this by being female first. And it's kind of an interesting concept, but the Bumble platform is different from the tenders of the world because women have to send the first message within 24 hours of being matched on the site. And that's attractive to women who feel like they want to be in control of the conversation, but also to to men who on other sites oftentimes never get responses to their messages. So it's this sort of unique strategy about trying to penetrate online dating that I think Match Group needs to watch out for. But what is worth noting here is that Bumble, despite its suddenly very large size, only has around $490 million in revenue, and that's for the, the fiscal year 2019, and that's growing pretty significantly, 36% year over year, but it's nothing. It's a fraction of what Match does, has over $2.4 billion in revenue over the same time period. So while Bumble certainly has its, its, its Match cut out for it, right? it has to take on what is a deeply entrenched player. At the same time, I think it comes at it with a very unique and very exciting strategy. Cloudflare wrapped up its fiscal year in style. Fourth quarter revenue for the cybersecurity company was up 50%. Paid customers were up 35%. So naturally, shares of Cloudflare <laughs> fell 5% on Friday. Jason, I mean, is this a valuation thing? Because 2020 was an amazing year for this stock. Uh, yeah, I do think I think that's the most reasonable explanation. Possibly a little concern on the margin side in the near term, but this, yeah, the valuation is the biggest risk for a company like this right now that's still working towards that uh, path to sustainable profitability. Uh, I mean, this was a terrific quarter by virtually every measure. The stock's selling down. Uh, I, I wouldn't really worry about that. I mean, this is a dip, perhaps, but I, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's selling down to levels we've not seen since Wait for It, Chris, a week ago. Okay, so let's keep everything in 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 uh, in, in context here. Uh, you mentioned some really good numbers there. Fourth quarter revenue, 126 million, up 50 percent. Paid customers, 35 percent. Dollar based net retention. Uh, up 300 basis points to 119 percent, and I think in the guidance for this coming year, uh, exceeded expectations really on all fronts as well. And it, Cloudflare is a really good business, I think, partly because of its diverse offerings, and so it, it's focused essentially on wanting to build a better internet. And so these offerings center around application management, content delivery, security, edge computing, and they've got an interesting revenue model as well from a freemium offering to usage-based to contract and subscription-based. So they so they're covering I think all of the bases there and they have a user base of three and a half million total free and paying customers. So the overwhelming majority of their customers right now are free but when you look at those paying customers, large customers, those that spend over $100,000 per year, uh, continue, they, they continue to really contribute to this business. They added 92 new large customers for the quarter. That brings the total to 828. A lot of their customers are moving into their team's product offering. Uh, I mentioned Edge. The Edge opportunity there with Cloudflare is a really big one with their Cloudflare worker platform. Uh, in quarter four, more than 50,000 new developers wrote and deployed their first Cloudflare worker application. And, and that rate of developers building on that workers platform has more than doubled since reporting it last quarter two. 
so, so all things considered, I mean, I think this is a business they continue to do what they say they're going to do. Uh, they're not focused on raising prices, and maybe that's where the margin question came in because we did see a little bit of margin compression there. But they noted that uh, this is nice, comparable to to what we heard Satya Nadella say a while back. Uh, Cloudflare noted in, in April, traffic grew across their network more in two weeks than they had expected it to grow over the course of two years. And, and so they really focused on being able to provide their customers with what they needed, uh, less focus on the pricing side. That might have contributed to a little margin erosion there, but I think that's temporary. All things considered, this is a business that continues to execute very well, very encouraged. Shares of Zillow up more than 20% this week and hitting an all time high on Friday after reporting the most profitable quarter in company history. On top of the results, Emily, Zillow's guidance for 2021 was pretty strong, too. The guidance for Zillow is largely a result of the guidance that their economists are putting out for the housing market in 2021. And for a lot of investors out there, they may think, well, there's no way the housing market in 2021 is stronger than what we saw in 2020. But early guidance says, yes, it will be. It'll continue to be an exciting time for Zillow, especially as they push more into their iBuying business. So, this is the direct purchasing that they have for people who are looking to buy or sell homes. And that's what's really most exciting about Zillow. A lot of investors may just think about the Zillow.com platform, the funny SNL sketch that is just getting everybody's attention over the past week. But Zillow offers, in particular, alongside their mortgage business and their home segment, this is where the exciting part of the business comes in. And when we looked over this previous quarter, we saw first ever positive returns on each home sold in the quarter to the tune of around $22,000 per home. So, this is a step in the right direction for Zillow. They also made an acquisition uh, website called Showing Time, uh, which Really seems like a smart acquisition. I know they don't have all the cash in the world, so uh, you know, five hundred million dollars is a not insignificant amount of money for Zillow. But it it really seems like a smart acquisition in terms of where this business is going. It certainly is. Zillow's new focus is getting consumers and purchases of home to feel comfortable buying on the Zillow platform. And a lot of that experience is going to come down to the services that Zillow provides and the acquisition of Showing Time, which is this kind of AI-driven 3D home modeling experience that allows people to experience the home virtually before buying it. That's the sort of thing that's really going to set Zillow offers and Zillow's eye buying above the top, above the competition that they're seeing from businesses like Redfin and Opendoor. Coming up, we've got digital payments, social media, and a deal in the video game industry. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. Early in the week, Electronic Arts bought Glue Mobile, a developer of mobile games, in a deal worth nearly $2.5 billion. Emily, no surprise that shares of Glue Mobile shot up because of the buyout price, but shares of EA were up a little bit too. This is a move in the right direction for EA because when you look at their mobile profile, their existing mobile profile, the biggest games they have are really outdated. We're talking about Plants vs. Zombies and Sims Free Play. This was EA's push into the mobile market. Acquiring Glue Mobile gives them a great collection of intellectual property, already really popular games that allows them to hopefully spur more internal development 
for mobile games in the future. As we're looking at the landscape for social interaction, not just coming out of the pandemic, but in the future, we're seeing a shift towards digital interactions, towards active and interactive interactions, as opposed to just kind of passive TV or movie watching. So it's smart for them to try to get into the mobile market, which is the fastest growing gaming market in the world right now. The only question is, is whether or not $2 billion was too much to pay for this business. Um, needless to say, it's a pretty lofty price for what is going to be something that they still need to internally develop, right? So, Glue Mobile alone, it's not just what they're acquiring in terms of their current game profile, it's the people working on that team that they need to churn out more successful games in the future. A firm holdings went public in mid-January. The provider of buy now, pay later loans issued second quarter results featuring a loss that was smaller than Wall Street was expecting, but shares of a firm falling 9% on Friday. Jason, help me out. Was this related to guidance? Was this about valuation? What's going on here? It probably is primarily valuation related. Again, I mean, we've got a business with tremendous opportunity in front of it, but it has just taken off with so many of these other names in the market that just haven't really developed any sustainable path to profitability yet. But when we look at the business itself, I mean, this is their first quarter out of the gate since the IPO. And I think all in all, I would say it's very encouraging. I wouldn't call this a buy at any price business, but I do see a lot of potential with it. They're very consumer-centric management team, and they do seem to be developing some interesting partnerships with companies like Shopify and Adyen, which are, are helping expand their network. If you look at the numbers, revenue of $204 million, that was up 57%. Now, if you back out the transaction costs, uh, revenue was $90 million, that was up 141%. So, that was strong. They've got active consumers now of 4.5 million uh, folks using their platform, that was up 52%. The merchant base grew 90% as well. If you remember, one of the bigger risks we noted with the firm early on was this reliance on Peloton. Around 30% of their revenue was tied to that relationship with Peloton. So, looking to see that number come down as the business gets bigger. And it, it seems like there are some signs that that's happening. But we're also seeing signs that that, that uh, reliance on Peloton can create some timing issues in the revenue that this business earns. I think ultimately it's worth remembering this is a very competitive space, right? We we talked about that buy now pay later opportunity and the question of whether it was one that consumers really wanted. It feels like it's it's one that consumers want, but now the incumbents in the payment space are really making those investments as well. PayPal recently called it their biggest surprise of all of their new offerings for the quarter, with three million customers already trying it. At hundreds of thousands of merchants. So I think it's just worth remembering the competition in the space is very heated. With that said, a very big market opportunity, and uh, this will be an interesting business to follow. Shares of Under Armour up 10% this week after the company reported a surprise profit in the fourth quarter. Emily, I don't want to get too excited about this because it's not like Under Armour blew everyone away, but this was a solid quarter. Yeah, you shouldn't get too excited, Chris, because despite having a somewhat profitable quarter unexpectedly, this business is still very much in the early stages of what will be a very long turnaround. Relatively new CEO Patrick Frisk is starting to deliver on some of the promises he made when coming into Under Armour's business. But when you look at the most recent quarter, apparel and footwear, despite new product launches in those segments, were both down year over year. The only segment 
segment that grew for Under Armour was accessories, which investors should read as masks. <laughs> so mask sales were better than expected, which is to be expected in the environment that we're living in today. We don't want to see them over-investing into masks and end up with a situation where their current brand portfolio doesn't sell through in future years. But what's really most important, not in this most recent quarter, but when evaluating their turnaround story for Under Armour in the long-term future, is looking at their success and strategy and going direct to consumer. This is something they highlighted a lot in the most recent quarter. They're following in the footsteps of brands like Nike, which are trying to pull out of these partnerships with smaller retailers and focus on establishing a more premium relationship with their most loyal consumers. So They haven't started cutting relationships with their partner stores yet, but that's expected to happen in the back half of 2021. Nike did it somewhat successfully, so we'll want to see the same success coming out of Under Armour. Regardless, as you mentioned, this was a good quarter, though. Uh, almost half of their direct-to-consumer sales were digital, which is up 40% year-over-year. And uh, wholesale revenue, which is what you want to see come down as they cut partnerships, was down 12%. Twitter's fourth quarter revenue came in higher than expected, and shares rose nearly 30% this week. Jason, Twitter is close to an all-time high. Was it that good? Well, it's it's nice to see the stock finally getting some love. I mean, I think for all of the things they've not done so well, Twitter, at the very least to me, has shown its resiliency as a general information platform. When you look at its user base compared to others, it's still to me, it's it's really a story of unfulfilled potential. They were part of that broader recovery in the ad market. So no surprise, their top line growth of 28% with $1.29 billion in the quarter. That was nice to see. Uh, ad engagements were up 35%. However, cost per engagement fell 3%. They said in the call that was mostly a function of supply outpacing demand. So it's it's always this constant conversation of them trying to figure out how to make their ad tech better. And I I feel like that's just going to always be a constant with the, with this with this investment. Uh, but to the users, I mean, the monetizable daily active users. Sequentially up just modestly from from 187 million a quarter ago to 192 million now. Uh, for comparison's sake, I mean, look at something like Snap, for example, 249 million a quarter ago to 265 million now. So when you look at all of these platforms, Twitter really is the smaller of of them all, and and they just they continue to have a hard time really ginning up impressive and compelling user growth. And you couple that with growing headcount by 20% in 2021, they're going to see expenses rise by 25%. I'd expect to see stock-based compensation go up as well. It's hard to get really enthusiastic about this business at this price level, but there is sort of a wild card in there. They're talking more about subscription offerings. They made this small acquisition of Review to pursue potentially long-form newsletter-style subscription offerings, or they may even look at, at subscription offerings for Twitter-specific features. That's all That's all yet to be determined, and they, they do move at a glacial pace, it seems, when it comes to innovating. But uh, all things considered, hey, listen, it's nice to see them getting some credit. All right, Chase and Emily, we'll see you later in the show. David Gardner is next. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. He rocks in the treetop all day long, hopping and a bopping and a singing song. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. David Gardner is the co founder, co chairman of the board, and chief rule breaker here at the Motley Fool. He joins me now. David, thanks for being here. It's great to be with you, Chris. Thank you. Let's start with Andy Jassy, the next CEO of Amazon. 
What did you think when you heard the news? Because Andy Jassy, for as important a player as he has been at Amazon, in the growth of Amazon, helping to start Amazon Web Services, not exactly a household name. No, and yet, you know, one thing that I have to admire just right up front is he he joined Amazon in 1997. That's right. He's been there for 24 years. So he is he's he's about as tenured as a, a, a follow-up to Jeff Bezos as anybody could hope to have. And and yet, even though he's been there 24 years, he's just 53 years old. So he's, he, I mean, he's he's obviously been close with Jeff for a long time. He's had held increasing amounts of responsibility in the same way that I trusted Steve Jobs to say, "Hey, Tim Cook, I've worked with you a long time. I think you'll do a good job with this company," and sure has. I, I would accord Bezos the exact same uh, respect and, and hope and expectation. Now, my expectation, by the way, Chris, is never that Apple would be a better stock under Tim Cook than it was under Steve Jobs, or that Amazon would be a better stock under Andy Jassy than it was under Jeff Bezos. It's just I expect more greatness. That's what I expect. Sometime later this year, Jeff Bezos's second act will officially begin, and obviously, he can do anything he wants. He's still going to be executive chairman at Amazon, but the expectation is that he will focus on other things. Realizing he can do whatever he wants, as an investor, is there part of you that hopes he focuses on one industry or another? Well, I mean, I I think that it's fair to guess that he's focused on outer space, and I think many people know that he has his own company in the same way that Elon Musk has had SpaceX. Uh, With a little bit less fanfare and maybe a little bit less scale, Jeff Bezos has had Blue Origin. Um, I did see Bezos present to an open gathering two years ago, sort of CEO types in and around Washington, D.C., and he was two years ago all about outer space, how how this was probably the great opportunity of our lifetimes for all of us. Uh, the, the steps that we're taking toward outer space mean more to mankind than anything else we could do, in his mind, more than e-commerce. And again, this was two years ago, so I'm not surprised uh, to see him uh, step down from Amazon. I mean, Let's be clear. I was surprised to hear him stand up from Amazon, Chris. I don't think anybody was calling for this. But then, once it was announced, A, I thought about space. And that's still what I'm thinking about for him. And B, the stock barely budged the next day, which shows us that it's about a great company and a great opportunity, not the superstar CEO. And I think that's a consistent lesson, whether we're talking about Tim Cook or a number of other times. People are like, well, what about what about after Warren and Charlie are gone? What about Berkshire Hathaway? The answer is, it'd probably be just fine. There are tons of people working at these companies, great cultures, lots of great leaders. Now that maybe not all the dust, but let's say a lot of the dust has settled. I'm curious what your reaction has been to the run-up of GameStop, the drama that we saw between hedge fund managers and investors on Reddit, you know, all of this. As this whole scene was playing out, what were you thinking? Uh, well, one thing I did is I went into Motley Fool Caps and gave it a thumb down when it was around uh, 300 or something, and <laughs> said I've never seen such an overvalued stock. Basically, so I mean, I in a lot of ways, I think this is similar to how the Motley Fool started with an April Fool's joke about 
pump and dump penny stocks, which was happening back in the 1990s, sure enough, as it will happen in the 2090s, because this is a timeless thing where you get people whipped up and excited about buying something, and they all buy from each other, and they send the stock price um, raging up, but it's not sustainable. So we've seen GameStop, you know, lose. I'm going to say at its peak, I think it's down 80% now from where it was just a week or two ago. Um, so um, I, I I think that's a, a sad misuse of people's money. At the same time, I realized there are about 23 factors here. They were kind of, in, on the one hand, going after short sellers, and some of those people I think probably deserve to be gone after. So, I mean, part of me wants to celebrate uh, the democratic spirit of people banding together on the internet and um, <laughs> moving kind of like a mob with their money into things and out of things. But ultimately, I hope this is a flash in the pan. I don't think this is a new pattern. I don't think this is going to feel relevant in a year or two. Um, I certainly welcome people's belief that they could collaborate together and invest in a better world. And that's what The Motley Fool's been doing for 27-plus years, and I hope for the rest of my life. But we're all about the long-term, Chris. We're about sustainable things. And finding companies that are down and outers, that are shorted, and then briefly causing their stocks to skyrocket while it's amusing for a while, so many people are losing so much money on the way back down, uh, which is a story that still has yet to be told. And it's just it's basically a misallocation of capital in a way that doesn't serve just about anybody. Yeah, in some ways to me the only part of the whole story that was surprising was the number of people who treated it as though this is the first time anything like this has ever happened. <laughs> I thought, no, we we've seen a lot of versions of this drama play out in the past. Um, speaking of which, I'm seeing and hearing more people making comparisons to the stock market right now in 2021 to the stock market of 20 years ago. And as you might guess, they're not favorable comparisons. There are, you know, and look, we, you and I have talked before how there are always going to be people standing up and loudly proclaiming, we're at a market top, uh, and eventually hoping that one day they'll be proven right. But, uh, you know, we were both around during that time in the market. Um, the comparisons of today's market to the market of 2000, 2001, is there any validity? Um, because certainly you can point to certain valuations. Put aside the GameStop drama, there are certain frothy valuations out there, just as we saw 20 years ago. Yeah, and I think it's perfectly fair to compare anything to anything else. I think that's part of what we do as humanities people, or at least that's that's what I was taught to do. Was I was majoring in English literature at University of North Carolina, so I think any things can be compared, and I certainly see some similarities in terms of just uh, there there's there is a a feeling among many that stocks are not not only have gone up a lot, but will probably keep going up a lot more. Um, and guess what? Good news? I think they will over the long term, which is the game I'm playing, the only term that counts. But um, there, there is a sense that, wow, that thing went up three times in value last year, which, by the way, is amazing. How many stocks trebled from March last year to now? Uh, a whole bunch. That is such unusual behavior. It is so rare to have good companies at scale double in a year let alone treble in a year. And so, I, I see comparisons between just the huge run-ups that we've seen. There are certainly some glam industries that, if you're part of software as a service, you feel like you are the dot-com winner right now. And I, I, Good news is, 
a lot of them will and will be long-term winners. After all, Amazon was born in the dot-bomb years, and it's now one of the most successful companies in the world today. So there will always be long-term winners, but there are a lot of me-toos, a lot of, I think, second- and third-bit players who are showing up. That's probably going to happen anytime the market has a great run. I can't see that not happening. It's just inevitable. Human nature being what it is. We're all kind of bandwagons. We bandwagon on to Tom Brady. Well, I find myself cheering on Tom Brady when his whole career I never really did. But then I'm just kind of, I think this is amazing. The guy's 43. You know, so, so how can you not love it? And yet that doesn't feel sustainable, very sustainable to me either. And so I think that we have to kind of get outside ourselves. And I think a question about comparing now to 20 years ago is perfectly fair and helps us try to look at things more objectively. Let's uh, stick with sports to wrap up here, because I know you're a huge fan of college basketball. You're a huge fan of Major League Baseball. What is your confidence level right now that an NCAA basketball tournament actually happens, or that we get as close as possible to a 162-game baseball season? So you're asking me to separate my confidence level from my hope. I think you know my hope level, Chris. And I have to admit, my hope level often guides my confidence levels in life. And it's not a bad approach to life. I was the person among my friends set of sports fans where I was saying, I think it'll happen. You know, This is going to happen. I'm not talking about this season. I was talking about last season. I was so happy. People thought that baseball had blown it. They should have gotten started at the All-Star break on July 4th of last year. Would have been a great day. Independence Day. And some people thought, well, now, since they didn't do it, and they're all just arguing with each other, the owners and the players, this will never happen. But it did. And I really enjoyed the baseball season last season, just like I enjoyed the NFL football season just concluded, which, as you and I talked about off-air ahead of time, was kind of a small miracle that it all happened all the way through a Super Bowl. So I will just say, as a betting person and as a person of hope, I would bet and hope that March Madness will happen this year for college basketball. I will bet and hope that Major League Baseball will happen this year. I'm not just hoping, I'm betting. I think that the financial incentives in place are large. And I think we have to respect those. And we saw those play out um, for for the NFL this this season. Obviously, college basketball, for those who watch it, like I do every day, you know that uh, for the ACC, which is where my school went, University of North Carolina, you went to Boston College, you're in the ACC now too, Chris, and one-fifth of all ACC men's basketball games have not been played this year, and that's just how it is. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of that dynamic, potentially with baseball, but I think it was a harder environment last summer to operate baseball in than it is this summer as vaccines are starting to show up. And so, So I would bet that Major League Baseball will have a World Series this year and mostly a normal season, and I will bet that college basketball, with its lockdown in Indianapolis, will manage, with the economic incentives in place, to play out March Madness. Whether your team or my team is actually there this year, that is a separate topic. If you want a weekly dose of insights and observations from David Gardner, listen to, subscribe to the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. You can find it Everywhere you find podcasts, David, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Fool on, fools. Coming up, Emily Flippin and Jason Moser return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. 
They don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Write to us, will you? We're lonely over here. Radio at fool.com. Great question from Jerry Lynch, who asks Are standalone pharmacies doomed? We've got CVS locations inside of Target stores. Retailers ranging from Walmart to Publix have offered full pharmacy and personal care services for many years. This appears to leave Walgreens in a precarious position. Is the concept of one-stop shopping for all shopping needs a juggernaut that will wipe out standalone pharmacy chains? Jason, uh, a, a lot to unpack there. Um, uh, including uh, the fact that we have online businesses, uh, Amazon being one of them, getting into the pharmacy space. Um, but let's start with that last part. How how mu- much trouble do you think the standalone physical bricks and mortar pharmacy business is in? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say doomed. I, I would say they are being forced to iterate and and change. Um, I, I always look to CVS kind of as as the the leader in this space, so to speak, and maybe that's just because that's the pharmacy that's closest to my house. Um, but you know, then that speaks to to the lack of competitive advantages. Often with these pharmacies, it's not really about going to which one you perform more. It's it's about which one's closest to you. Uh, but but I do think that they are being forced to iterate, become something else. And and what I mean by that is you're looking at these pharmacies uh, starting to create new relationships in order to become more like virtual healthcare centers. And so. Uh, it, there's this one statistic that that the CBS likes to always quote, and it's it's approximately 70% of the U.S. population lives within five miles of a CVS. And, and so, I think they're finding that, hey, instead of selling Pringles and beef jerky, why not focus on selling things like healthcare services? And so, you're seeing them partner up with companies like Teladoc, for example, to offer telemedicine services and minute clinics. Uh, the Aetna acquisition, for example, from CVS. I mean, that was something where they're, they're ultimately becoming more of a 21st century healthcare company. So, I don't think they're doomed, but they absolutely are being forced to iterate. And I think that probably will consolidate the sector a little bit. Emily, what stands out to you in this space? It's funny because when you look over the past year, you would think that uh, virtual buying, in particular virtual healthcare, would be at its all time peak. And while we have seen an adoption of telemedicine, at the same time, more and more Americans are actually going to CVS. They're actually going to Walgreens. In fact, at peak pandemic, only about a quarter of Americans ordered things like delivery online. The vast, vast majority of people were still physically going into places like grocery stores and pharmacies. So I think there is always going to be some segment of the population that prefers to go to a local pharmacy. And if their most convenient one is a CVS or a Walgreens, that's probably where they go to. Now, that's not to say that it's a great investment. There are clearly some headwinds. I think virtual medicine is a headwind. I think the more noticeable headwind is the initiatives that Walmart is actually doing into creating small integrated pharmacies focused on healthcare within that shopping experience. So, I do think there's threat from these one-stop shops to kind of disrupt traditional pharmacies. But that's not going to put them out of business. I think it's going to act as a as a headwind, because ultimately, when you look at what people go and, and how people utilize pharmacies, it's not necessarily a one-to-one substitute between walking into a, a Walmart and walking into a CVS. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? 
Yeah, I've been digging more into Brooks Automation, ticker uh, BRKS, and they are a provider of uh, manufacturing automation solutions for, interestingly, the semiconductor industry as well as the life science services industry. And so it's kind of a two for one here with Brooks Automation. But but they, in the semiconductor manufacturing market, they provide precision robotics and automation systems, contamination control, uh, life sciences. They offer a full suite of services for analyzing, managing, and storing biological and chemical compound samples. So, an interesting, diverse business model there. Uh, the value proposition seems to be that what they do is really specialized. It's difficult to get into, and, and it's even more difficult to really do well. And they've been at it for several decades now. So, so, uh, business I'm learning a little bit more about. Uh, CEO Steve Schwartz has been with the company uh, as CEO since 2010. They've grown revenue at a compound annual growth rate of 11.2% over the last five years. Could be a business with some interesting competitive advantages. Dan, question about Brooks Automation? Absolutely. Well, when I think about Brooks Automation, I of course think Brooks Brothers, the men's fashion companies founded in 1818, I think, 160 years before Brooks Automation. But Brooks Automation has the website brooks.com. And I feel like that was a huge get for them uh, in the Brooks sphere. I feel I feel like you're right. You know, I've got a Brooks Brothers tie in my wardrobe that was a gift to a member of the country club where I where I left the golf business years and years ago, and I still have that tie today. I love it. Brooks Brothers, good stuff. Emily Flippin, what are you looking at this week? I'm actually looking at a company that took a little bit of a nosedive this week. That's Unity Software. The ticker is just you. And I'm a big fan of this business. Unity is a 3D rendering platform aimed at the gaming industry, but is increasingly targeting other industries like automation, engineering, manufacturing. So it's an exciting rendering platform that has done an amazing job, grew revenue nearly 40% last quarter, and had a 32% growth year over year, and customers spending more than $100,000 a year on its platform. Dan, question about Unity Software? Yeah, Emily, what about Unity taking a nosedive makes it interesting for you to bring to the show this week? Because when you look at why it nosedived, it was actually because of Apple potentially changing its rules around activity tracking. But if you listen to management talk about the change of these rules, they're actually really bullish about their ability to adapt to Apple's new world and actually increase their ability to, uh, to provide different services and change their monetization strategy. So it actually painted up to be a bad thing last quarter, but I think long term, it can be good. Two very different businesses there, Dan. You got one you want to add to your watch list? You know, I was originally going to go with Brooks here, but Emily convinced me with the answer to her question. So I'm going to go with Unity. Yay! Is it because, uh, in some small way, you're still mad or surprised that Brooks Brothers let Brooks.com get away from them? I mean, they've been around for 160 <laughs> years more than Brooks Automation. I think this was a huge, huge blind spot for them. Dan, as a Unity shareholder, I, I, I can't knock a choice there. You made a good call. Good, good pitch, Emily. Nice job. All right, Emily, Jason, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. Our producer's Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey, 